Well, that just goes to show you that we're all called to ministry. And when you don't accept it, he just puts you in a place to do it anyways. <laughs> all right, today's reading will be out of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word. Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout loudly, O daughter of Israel, sorry, of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. From the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you to double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. I will wield you like a warrior sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will sound the trumpet, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they will shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new, line, new wine the young women. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. <coughs> All right, you may want to keep a finger in Zechariah 9 and turn over with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. <clears throat> Thank you, Ed, for sharing the testimony. You wanted to, I wanted, wanted us to see and um, hear what it's like just for anybody to be sharing their faith with somebody um so uh thank you ed for your faithfulness in, in, in sharing the gospel with this friend um ed's been talking to me about him for a long time and and i thought it was time for us to join in prayer and praying with him and and hear how that's going uh so i'm excited that ed's had that ed has had that opportunity um one thing i did uh neglect to mention during the announcements once again um I'm forgetful, I'm sorry. Um, we do have a, uh, a business meeting immediately following the service. If you are a member of our church, please stick around uh, after the service. And we have a, a quick business meeting that we need to take care of. And right after that is uh, we have a, a potluck meal. So if you're thinking, I don't want to stick around because, because I might be hungry, well, there's food. So uh, we, we, we got you covered. So stick around for the business meeting if you're a member. And then uh, join us for the, for the meal afterwards. Um, all right, so John chapter 12 uh, is where we are today. Um, John chapter 12, um, beginning in verse 12. Let's go ahead and read this passage. Uh, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been, that had been with him uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to, to see, to look at this passage, to, um, uh, to, to, to rejoice with, these, with this group of people, Lord, as you, as you entered into Jerusalem. And I pray that as we look at this passage, we will see that you are indeed a king and you are indeed the Messiah. You are indeed the Savior of the world. Uh, and uh, I pray that you just teach us as we walk through this passage. Help us to learn much from you and help us to apply this to our lives. In your name, amen. <clears throat> what would you do if you found out that President Donald Trump was going to be coming to Gordon today? <laughs> Mixed reactions, maybe, right? Now, we have a pretty good idea of what probably would happen, right? We've seen this on television enough. If he was driving through, we might line the streets and cheer as we see, as we've seen done uh, with presidential motorcades on television. Um, but uh, what if he was going to be hanging out in town? Now, whether or not you like the guy, whether or not you think of whatever you think of his politics, you probably be like, hey, the president's in town. I want to go see this guy, right? If he was hanging out in town, you you might try to find a prominent spot to hear him give a speech, or you might try to make sure you shake his hand just to say you did it, right? I shook his hand. Uh, you may try to get a selfie with him, right? Uh, or maybe you'll try to bake your, your famous apple pie, hoping that he, he and give that to him, hoping he eats it and tells you it's the best apple pie he's ever tasted in his entire life. And then you can tell all your friends about that. Now, um, uh, and even so, if he was here right now, I'm sure that many of us probably wouldn't even be in this room. We'd probably be looking to have that opportunity to see him. Uh, we may even act in a similar way if, if the governor or, or if there's some famous musician or famous movie star that was in town. Uh, we might act in a similar way. None of us, how, however, would respond with the same kind of acclaim for just anyone. When I walk down the streets of downtown Gordon, there's no paparazzi. There's nobody giving me apple pies. Nobody's looking for, nobody's that excited about me walking downtown. It's just like, hey, there's that guy, whatever. He's fat, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, only someone worthy would receive that kind of pomp that we've seen, that we've seen described uh, about, about maybe a president. In our scripture today, we see that the people in Jerusalem respond to Jesus by giving him a royal welcome. They treat him as they would a king. I know we're a few weeks away from Palm Sunday, but this here in our passage, we're here at the triumphal entry, which what Palm Sunday celebrates the week before Christmas, or week before Easter, sorry. My dates are all messed up, apparently. <laughs> the week before Easter is Palm Sunday, and that's uh, this event right here. Now, um, to be fair, I wanted to bring this up too. Every uh, Adult Sunday school class has all covered this situationally in Matthew. They covered in Matthew chapter 21, this exact event. So I don't feel as bad about preaching this a couple weeks early from Palm Sunday because our Sunday school did it too. So um, this will actually be a good thing. We can get a little bit deeper into the study of what you may have seen in Sunday school uh, and, and, gain, and gain some extra insight. Hearing it twice is always helpful. Um, that's what teachers say, right? Repetition helps you learn. Um, 
Well, let's begin diving into this beautiful passage of praise to our Savior. Uh, as we begin, I want to I mention how we're going to format this particular sermon. Uh, rather than follow a pattern of dividing the text into natural divisions and drawing application from those natural sections of text, this passage best follows a format on, on movements within the text. Um, Hence, we'll, we'll, follow, we'll follow the movements of the text and make formal applications at the end based on the content of the passage. There are three interpretive movements that we'll see in this passage today. Uh, so as we'll, this is kind of how we'll have this outline today. Uh, first, we'll see a movement that I've called tabernacles and timing. Uh, second, we'll see a movement that I call donkeys and interpretation. And third, we'll see a movement that I call reasons and reactions. And so with these movements in mind, I think we'll best be able to see the main drive of this passage and understand what's going on and how this passage is moving through. So let's, go, let's dive in, uh, starting again at verse 12. Um, we see, just, just ju- jumping right in here, uh, verse 12 says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. It says there was a large crowd. Now, how big is a large crowd? Somebody might see this group and see that's a large crowd, Right? Um, Somebody may see a group of 200 people being a large crowd or 500 people being a large crowd. Um, In in, uh, growing up, we lived, uh, there's a really famous air show, uh, uh, nationally, actually international air show uh, in uh, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. We grew up about 30 minutes away from there. It's called, uh, it's uh, Experimental Aircraft Association Air Venture, EAA Air Venture. And um, this is, it's, just, it's a fairly, it's not a giant airport. It's not like DFW. It's a, it's a fairly small airport. It's a medium, maybe medium-sized airport for small airports as far as they go. Um, and there are literally a million people or more that come to this event. It's a, it's a week-long event. And on any given day, there could be from, you know, 500,000 to a million people at that event. It's crowded, I mean, it's an airport, and it's just people everywhere, airplanes and people everywhere. Um, so uh, we can imagine that that would be a large crowd. Here in, in Jerusalem, it's estimated there is probably about a million people in the city of Jerusalem. Right now, again, Jerusalem is not like skyscrapers and like Dallas would be. This is not that kind of a layout. A million people is a big crowd of people. That's a lot of people to have in one small town. So when it says there's a large crowd, now it's probably not all million people that are there, but there's a good number of people that can be drawn from to create this large crowd. Um, there's a large crowd, and they, they, uh, they had come to the feast. Remember, we're dealing with Passover right now. They're coming up on Passover. Um, Passover would have been on, uh, this, this was uh, very likely, this was, or as we understand this, this was on Sunday. Uh, this was on, uh, on Sunday, and, and Passover would have taken place on Thursday. Right? So Passover, the holiday is coming up for them. Uh, it's a big feast. People, all the Jewish people from all around the world would come into this area to celebrate Passover together uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, so there's this massive crowd. Uh, they, they had come to the feast and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, again, remember, Jesus is a pretty popular guy at this point. He's, he's healed a lot of people. Uh, he's a, been very controversial. Lots of people are, well, do we, what do we think about him? What do we not think about him? And there's been a lot of controversy. Jesus is a pretty well-known figure by this time. He's been ministering for about three years in Galilee and in, 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 in Judea. Um, so he's a pretty well-known figure. So these people heard Jesus is coming in. Jesus is coming into town, right? They weren't sure if he was going to come into town or not. If we, uh, in fact, if we remember uh, back uh, in the end of chapter 11, people were unsure whether 
whether or not he was going to come. They were, they were thinking he probably would come, but they didn't know for sure. And now they find out Jesus is coming into the city and they go to greet him. And look at the way that they, and we're going to look at here is the way that they greet him. When they heard Jesus was entering, they gave him a royal welcome. Look at verse 13. It says, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You wouldn't say that for just anybody. Let's talk about this. What does this mean? What's, what's going on here? What is, what is the implications of what's taking place here? First of all, we see that they have palm branches. Right? Why is that important? Literally, this, this, the, the, way, the, the literal translation here would be palm branches of the palm trees. Right? That's literally how John puts this, is, is palm branches of the palm trees. The fact that John gives a double mention of the palm branches um, indicates that they're a significant part of this narrative. So we need to understand why palm branches are so important. Culturally, Palm branches held a high place of honor as the national Jewish symbol. They were used at the rededication of the temple after the Maccabean revolt in 164 BC. Uh, remember we talked about the Feast of Dedication. This is all that the events going on with that, with Hanukkah. Um, the, is the, so when they rededicated the temple, uh, they, they, they had palm branches there as part of the celebration. And thus, uh, they were used as part of the Feast of Dedication, part of the Hanukkah celebration at this time. Um, after the New Testament, Jewish rebels against Rome, they made coins that had palm branches on them as a symbol of their, of their, uh, uh, of their rebellion. Thus, part of the significance of the palm branches may have signaled uh, a, quote, nationalistic hopes that, it, that in Jesus, a messianic liberator had arrived, unquote. So in, in having palm branches, they understood Jesus to be, their, their interpretation of who Jesus was is that he was a, a national hero coming to save them, to, coming to liberate them from the people of Rome. Theologically, however, if we remember back to John chapter 7, um, we, we, we saw that waving palm branches were required at the Feast of Tabernacles. The only biblical requirement for the waving of palm branches was at the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have taken six months prior to this event. Uh, remember that the Feast of Tabernacles was a harvest festival, and because of the association with the coming of the Messiah, with, with water, uh, which is part of the harvest celebrations that, 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 that um, in Zechariah 14, the promise that the Messiah would come with bringing water. Um, many Jews associated the coming of the Messiah with the Feast of Tabernacles and the symbolism along with it, including the waving of palm branches. We also described how all the feasts described in Leviticus 23 represent God's calendar of redemption. Tabernacles is the last feast and will ultimately be fulfilled along with the events of Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, when people wave palm branches there as well. Here the people seem to recognize Jesus as their Messiah King and begin to celebrate tabernacles by waving palm branches and quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was a significant part of the celebration of tabernacles. So here they are, they're doing what's required of them for the celebration of tabernacles, now, again, they're not stupid. They know what day it is. They know it's not the actual Feast of Tabernacles, but they're connecting the symbolism of tabernacles with interpreting who Jesus is. 
Right? So then along, then along with that, they're singing this song from Psalm, Psalm 118 that would have been part of the, of the tabernacle celebration. As a matter of fact, Psalm 118 would have been sung every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles. So this, this psalm that they, that they quote from would have been strongly associated with tabernacle celebration. The waving of palm branches would have, been, would have been associated with tabernacle celebration. They are seeing here, they are understanding that Jesus is fulfilling tabernacles. But what's the problem with that? That's the last holiday on the, on the, on the redemptive calendar. They're skipping to the end, before the beginning. Thus, the people, uh, while they are correct in seeing Jesus as the Messiah King, they misunderstand the timing. So we talked about this tabernacles and timing. They, they see that Jesus, or they, they think that the Jesus is this Messiah. He's, he's fulfilling tabernacles. He's bringing in peace. He's bringing in everything. All of our nationalistic hopes are all coming true right now. But they missed the timing. First, Jesus had to be the Passover lamb. Passover would have been the first holiday in their calendar, which is the events that they're actually there to celebrate. And here they are celebrating Jesus as if tabernacles has arrived when Jesus had not yet been the Passover lamb sacrificed for the people. So they misunderstood the timing. So we have to understand that here. The people are, are jumping the gun, if you will. They think something is being fulfilled, but that what's actually, they're not expecting what actually takes place. Right, so there's a misunderstanding here. Then again, we see that they're quoting Psalm 118. It says, it says here in verse 13, they, they go out to him with palm branches. They went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna, this word is, is a literal translation. If you were to look at the Hebrew word in, in Psalm chapter 118 and verse 25, your translations may say something about save us. The word literally means save, or it could mean give salvation now. It's a cry for salvation. The word Hosanna here then is just, it's just letter by letter exactly what the Hebrew word would be, Hosanna. It means save us. It's a cry for salvation. So they quote this part of verse 25 and then follow that up with this next section that comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some commentators suggest that it is possible that this psalm was a welcome and blessing upon a Davidic king. As a matter of fact, if, we, if, if you remember from your Sunday school material, uh, in Matthew chapter 21, when they quote this same psalm, they add into this section, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David. There's a connection. They, they drew this connection in Psalm 118 that this is, this is about the coming of a Davidic king. This one who comes in the name of the Lord is a king that is a son of David. Is Jesus a king who is a son of David? Yes. Right? That's the purpose of the, the uh, one of the purposes of the, of the uh, genealogies in Matthew and Luke is to point out that Jesus is the son of David. He is the greater David that will bring salvation to the people. And here the people uh, uh, sing this song, uh, believing that their king has arrived. Now again, it's a different king than the one, than the one they expect. Uh, and we'll get to that here in just a second. 
and a little bit later. Um, there, there's also, there are also many uh, in this time period and a little bit later, there are many Jewish scholars, Jewish teachers um, that, that understood Psalm 118 to be a messianic prophecy, that the one who comes in the name of the Lord is the Messiah. So that may also form the background of their singing this song. They understand him to be a Messiah king, though they're misunderstanding how that works. Right? They don't understand what that means for him to be the Messiah King. They, they, they're recognizing it. And so far, we, we're seeing that they've got it all right. right? They're, all, they're on the right track. They see him as the Messiah King. They're ready to worship him as the, as the coming of the Feast of Tabernacles. But they're missing it. Right? They got the wrong timing. And a matter of fact, as we'll see at the end of the, at the, end of the passage today, as, he, well, we, as we come to the end, they really do completely miss it. They add to Psalm 118 here, uh, as, they, as they look at this, they, they add to this part of their interpretation of the psalm. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Uh, most likely this was added to the praise of Jesus because they understood Jesus as their Messiah King. Secondly, let's look at donkeys and interpretations. Uh, beginning in verse 14, we see Jesus, says, and it says, and, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been, had been written about him and had been done to him. So Jesus first finds a young donkey. In the other gospels, Jesus, uh, in Matthew, you may remember from Sunday school, in Matthew, uh, Jesus commands his disciples to find a young donkey. Now, we should not assume here then that Jesus finding a donkey and the disciples going and getting a donkey, that we're talking about two donkeys here, right? Rather, we should understand that John is, is just not repeating information that they would have already had. John was the last of the four Gospels to be written. He very likely had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He, he had access to them and said, they already had that information. I don't need to add that. I don't need to, I don't need to explain that. So he just brings up Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, but then John, like Matthew does as well, points out the significance of there being a donkey there. It says, it's because it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt from Zechariah chapter 9, which we read earlier. And we'll, we'll jump, we'll go over there in a second and kind of dig into Zechariah 9 a little bit um, and, uh, and see some of these things. So, um, so what's the importance of the donkey? Why is that significant, right? Why is that an, such an important thing? Some interpreters understand the donkey to be a symbol of humility. So Jesus is trying to settle the crowd down by taking a seat of humility rather than the seat of a king by riding on a donkey instead of a horse. Other interpreters suggest that Jesus' fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 indicates that he is a king coming in peace as opposed to mounted on a war horse. Thus, rather than pursue a violent overthrow that the crowds may have expected, Jesus comes to Jerusalem in peace. He enters as a peaceful king rather than a warring king. Um, so then maybe this, uh, again, as, we, as we're seeing how the people are responding, they want to bring Jesus in. They're trying to set him up as king. Really, Jesus could have, if he wanted to. He had the backing of the people. And he could have said, all right, let's take over. Let's destroy Rome and go. Jesus could have started a war right here if that was his purpose. But that wasn't his purpose, right? 
He could have come in riding on a war horse and they could have made him king right there and he could have led the people in revolt against Rome, freed them from, from their bondage and then had political freedom from there on out. But that wasn't what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to bring them political freedom. Rather, he came to bring them freedom from their sin. Salvation from their sin. So here, they, they're, they're, there's, that's where we have a disconnect. There's a misunderstanding into what Jesus is doing. Uh, they're trying to proclaim him as king. They see him as their king, Messiah, as their Messiah king. And, and yet Jesus is, is trying to show them, I'm not here for what you're expecting. Uh, yet uh, one final uh, interpreter suggested in Zechariah 9, that coming to this king is not entirely peaceful. Um, uh, if you want to look back at Zechariah 9, Look at right after verse 9. It says, This king will come in, in humility or gentle and mounted on a donkey, uh, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. That doesn't sound exactly peaceful, right? We're going to take out these militaries. It's going to be done. Right? We're going to end war. Ending war is messy. Peace comes by blood very often. Right, so here we have, um, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. So there is, there is, there is peace that comes out as an end result, but there is definitely uh, not, a, not a purely uh, peaceful situation here. Uh, the end result of his arrival may be peace, but that peace that derived, it is a peace that derives from his powerful and authoritative kingship. Quote, if there is peace, it is because he, was, he has defeated the enemies by overpowering and overthrowing them. And the humility of this king is that he welcomes his people into his kingdom under his rule, offering them salvation. In verse 9, uh, it says that they offer him salvation by establishing a blood covenant with them in, in Zechariah 9 verse 11. And by shielding them from all further enemies in verse 15 and establishing them as his flock dwelling in his, in his land like, a, like crowns in a jewel in verse 16. Whatever the case, it may seem best to understand that Jesus is not shying away from being celebrated as a king. Jesus is not trying to tell them, guys, I'm not really a king. I'm going to come on a donkey to try to get you to stop thinking of me as a king. Rather... In coming in as a king on a donkey, as a peaceful king, um, uh, he, is, he, he is accepting that celebration as, as, as their king, although the type of kingship he will fulfill is a different kingship than the one that they anticipated. He will bring salvation and peace not by the sword, but by his own sacrifice. He will exhibit authority not by a military coup against Rome, but by a conquering death in his resurrection but by conquering death in his resurrection. This is what we are pushed to understand from verse 16 in John chapter 12. The, the, in verse 16, it, it, it begins the, the apostle, the disciples start to, we start to get some insight into the disciples' understanding. Um, let's jump back to, to verse 14 and 15 then before we jump, before we go to that section. It says, as it is written uh, at the very end of verse 14, just as it is written, this is the way John usually typically will he'll introduce uh, uh, Old Testament prophecy, uh, Old Testament scripture, especially when Jesus is, doing, is fulfilling prophecy. 
Um, Zechariah 9, 9 again says, uh, we see here, it says, uh, the quote in verse 15 says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Uh, the fear not is act- not actually in Zechariah 9, 9. If you looked at Zechariah 9, 9, the words fear not are not there at all. Very likely what John is doing what, uh, is he is trying to interpret these events. He is bringing multiple scripture passages to bear on this. He is interpreting Zechariah 9, 9 through the lens of Isaiah chapter uh, 40. Uh, in verse 9, where he gets the fear not from. Those words in Isaiah 40, verse 9, are addressed to the one who brings good tidings to Zion. Right? So, fear not from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9. And then he quotes the rest of Zechariah 9, 9. Um, here, so he's bringing these two passages together to form one interpretive basis for understanding what Jesus is doing. Um, sitting on a donkey's colt, then, uh, this is Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah through his actions. Right? How clear could this be? We talked about this in, in I was in the couple, the couple Sunday school class, and uh, we talked about how precise Jesus' fulfillments of prophecy are. How many prophecies Jesus fulfills. Um, and, 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 and just how precise this was. I mean, it, you, would, you would imagine it would be near impossible to see Jesus, who has fulfilled all this prophecy, and now comes in riding on a donkey, a clear connection to Zechariah 9.9. This one who is coming, this one who is bringing peace, this king who is coming to bring peace. That This should be clear as a bell to everybody there. Oh, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one bringing salvation, and we need to worship him. And it may seem that that's what the people are doing. However, John gives us some insight here in verse 16. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. It was not until the death and resurrection that his disciples were able to understand the significance of Jesus' actions and their fulfillment in Zechariah 9. In fact, we've seen this before. Jesus' resurrection becomes the lens by which the disciples understand by which his people are able to understand who Jesus really is. Um, we've seen this in other places in John where John, where the Jesus does something and then John tells us, and they didn't understand what he was saying until he was glorified. And they didn't understand what he was saying until they were glorified. The disciples are kind of thick-skulled uh, a lot of times in the book of John, uh, which I love that because I'm just as thick-skulled. So it takes me time to learn things. It's taking them time to learn things. We're on the same page, right? Um, but uh, we see here that the disciples didn't understand. It wasn't until Jesus' glorification. And this, as we've seen in the Gospel of John before, this is talking about his death and resurrection. Jesus' resurrection changes our interpretation of Scripture. It helps us see Scripture through the correct lens. The disciples would not have, did not understand Zechariah 9.9 until Jesus rose from the dead. And they go, oh, that's what he meant. That's what Zechariah 9.9 was about. That's what Isaiah 7 was about. That's what Isaiah 53 was about. That's what this whole, all of scripture was all about Jesus the entire time. And we know that now because he rose from the dead. And there it is. The resurrection changes everything when it comes to interpretation. Um, 
And third, we, third, the third point we see here, we see reasons and reactions in verse 17 uh, through, through 19. Um, uh, reasons and reactions. As typical in John, we're not left to wonder about why the crowd does what it does, nor are we left wondering how the crowd reacts. John shows us the different reactions surrounding this event, giving insight into the motives of the people. We have verse 17. Uh, it says the crowd had been uh, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the street, out of the tombs, and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So remember back in chapter 11, just one chapter previous, John had raised someone from, or Jesus had raised someone from the dead. You think word's not going to spread about that? We saw, last, we saw last week that Bethany was only about two miles away. It's a one hour walk, right? They're not far away. If somebody was raised from the dead in a two-hour walk's distance from you, think we'd probably be knowing about that. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? And here it is, tells us that the people who had seen this, the people who had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, the people who knew who Lazarus was, knew what happened, they had been talking about Jesus. Like, guys, there's this guy that raises people from the dead. We need to get to know this guy. So the people are excited, right? There's, there's other people in the crowds that they want to see this guy. That's what happens, and we see that in, um, in verse 18. Uh, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard what he had done. That they heard that he had done this sign. Um, the raising of Lazarus, again, shows significance here. Despite the best efforts of the religious leaders to stop the spreading of Jesus' fame due to the raising of Lazarus, this miracle has led, as, as they suspected, to the growing popularity of Jesus. The miracle of raising Lazarus was the reason that they welcomed Jesus royally. They were correct to draw the connection between Jesus' miracle and his identity as king. But they still did not grasp the true nature of Jesus' kingship or the true meaning of his signs. For all the excitement in this passage, so again, we can come away from this passage being like, yes, all these people are worshiping Jesus. Isn't that great? Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They still did not believe in him. The crowds throughout the gospel have been fickle indeed. At one moment, they're ready to crown Jesus as their king, yet his time had not yet come. So he was able to escape from their fervor. Only a few months earlier from this triumphal entry, the same crowds in Jerusalem were ready to stone Jesus. They were ready to kill him, yet he eluded them again for his time had not yet come. Now they're ready to crown him king. And only a few days later, again, this is Sunday, and on Thursday, uh, the same week, they will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. One thing I want to point out about this. So many times we, we connect emotion with worship. If we were to see this passage, if we were to see a group of people, right, standing out in the streets and being like, Jesus, 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 yeah, Jesus. We'd be like, oh, they're worshiping. They believe in Jesus, right? And here we have a crowd of people doing just that. And do they believe in him? No. Is that type of excitement really an indication of someone's heart? No. It's not Jonathan Edwards, as a matter of fact, if you, if you want to read some, uh, a great book on this. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote a book called On Religious Affections or Religious Emotions. And he talks about what is real emotions that can 
very likely help us to see that this person really is a believer and what are not. And most of the time throughout the book, he's like, this and this and this. Nope. <laughs> this. What about you getting really excited and speaking in tongues and doing this and doing that? Nope. What about waving your hands and stuff like that? No. It's, it's not necessarily a great indication that someone is truly saved. Now, again, those things can be part of worship, right? But by themselves, those things do not lead you to, believe, to, to know a person's heart. Here we have a people who are worshiping Jesus in probably the most amazing way we could think. He is our king. Let's make him our king. Here he is. Wave palm branches. Lay them before him. You know, put our coats down so that his donkey can walk on, on our coats instead of on the dirt. And here, they don't believe in him. They don't really believe in him. They misunderstood the message. Verse 19, then, at this moment, uh, the, it says in verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. At this moment, the Pharisees feel that they have failed to stop Jesus. Hyperbolically, they exclaim, look, the whole world has gone after him. Just like Caiaphas in chapter 11, they have unwittingly spoken prophetically. For the salvation and kingship which Jesus would extend... Um, would reach beyond the confines of Jerusalem and be made available to every tribe and tongue and nation. Indeed, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, salvation is offered to the whole world. What they meant is by saying, you know, the whole world is, oh, everybody seems to be following after him, right? Really was prophetic. Now, not that everyone will be saved, but that his salvation would extend beyond the borders of Jerusalem and to, the, to every tribe and tongue and nation. However, salvation is not a mere earthly salvation from poverty or political oppression, but a salvation from sin and its eternal effects. So let's step back here. Let's, let's draw a couple of applications from this passage. Uh, first of all, we saw, we saw that the disciples' understanding of, of, uh, the disciples understanding of Scripture changed because of the resurrection. Theo, we, um, we must understand Scripture as the apostles taught us to understand Scripture. We must understand it theologically through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rather than go to the Old Testament and say, oh, here's a bunch of stories of people that I need to, I need to be like them, or I don't need to be like that guy. Uh, rather, the, the Old Testament is theologically directing us to say, there are no good guys except Jesus. Everybody else fails. There's only one good guy, and he's the Messiah. So when we read the story of Joseph, I'm like, oh, we need, guys, we need to be just like Joseph. No, don't be like Joseph. Joseph ends up being a nobody, for one thing, right? He's, he's this, a whole bunch of scriptures given out about him, and then Exodus 1 starts off right after Genesis 50. It says, and nobody remembered who Joseph was. Well, thanks. You know, great. I spent all this time reading about Joseph, and I find out he's not really that important to the story, right? Uh, in fact, in Genesis 49, it shifts, our, it shifts our attention away from Joseph onto Judah, right? All the things that were prophesied about Joseph end up being fulfilled in Judah. The prophecy, the, anyway, that's a long story. I'm not going to go there. We are, are, are running low on time. But uh, the, the scripture is pointing us to see Jesus, to see Christ in the scriptures. And when we go to scripture to look for mere applications, I guess is a way I mean to say this, when we're just looking at it to get something, you know, make me feel good this week, 
we're missing the point of Scripture. We're missing where Scripture is trying to draw us. Now, again, it may take more work to try to understand what is Scripture saying. How does the death and resurrection of Christ help me understand this passage? That may take more work. But I, I, I think that like the disciples here, that's where we want to end up, right? Once, the, once Jesus rose from the dead, I'm sure John, being one of the disciples, is probably like, well, that's what Zechariah 9.9 was about. Wish you would have known that then, dummy, right? Probably he's, this is commentary on himself. You got to realize this, right? Saying I was an idiot and I didn't understand the Bible. Jesus rose from the dead. Now I get it, right? John is talking about himself here. So the same with us. When we come to Scripture, we try to. We usually take ourselves into the Bible, right? We say, uh, uh, you know, we look at David and Goliath and we say, oh, we need to defeat giants in our lives, right? Because I'm David. And, and, and Goliath is all my problems, right? But really, what's going on? We have, if we're doing that, we're putting ourselves in the text, not looking for Christ in the text. We're not looking for a savior who saves people from, from, from a, 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 wicked, uh, a wicked nation, people from their, saving people from their sins, saving, bringing salvation to the people. We don't see that part. In fact, Jesus is the greater David, not us. Right? We are not the greater David. And we've got to be careful not to put ourselves in the text in an inappropriate way and rather look for Jesus in the text. And more importantly, the, the, bigger, the bigger idea of this is we must believe that Jesus is our Savior Messiah, our Savior Messiah King. He is. Jesus' miracles lead us to his identity. Every single time John has brought up something Jesus has done, a miracle that he has performed, the goal of that teaching or the goal of that miracle has been to point out that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, the one who has come to bring salvation to mankind. That is what Jesus has done. That is his identity. His miracles lead us to this conclusion. Um, his fulfillment of prophecy leads us to this conclusion. Everything about Jesus, everything he does fulfill is, is to fulfill prophecy, to direct us to see his identity, that he is our Savior, he is our Messiah, he is our King. And not just because he was some great guy who lived and died, but because he is alive because he rose from the dead. And, uh, and third, we, and, and along with that, we must understand that appreciation for Jesus is not the same thing as believing in him. Liking him, thinking he's a great guy, even somebody that you might want to wave palm branches at or, or want to go and see the motorcade when he drives through, that doesn't make him, that doesn't mean, it's not the same thing as believing in him. Um, scripture tells us that God, the Son, the second person of the Godhead, as John tells us, the Word of God became flesh. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He took on humanity so that he may die for our sins, so that he may raise us to life through his resurrection. So that salvation is offered to each one of us. If you are here and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not, you don't really trust Jesus as your Savior. You're, you may like Jesus. You may have heard some stuff about Jesus, but you've never really trusted him. You've never really made him king and Lord in your life. So many other things are king and Lord in your life, and Jesus is not ruling and reigning as your king. I want to challenge you today. Uh, today is the day to accept him. Today is the day to believe in him. Let me challenge you, if you have not made Jesus your Savior, if you have not believed and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, to do that now, to do that today, as we move into a time of invitation. 
Jesus is, is, is calling you. If you are not a believer, Jesus is, has shown who he is. He is a fulfiller of prophecy. He is the God of the Bible. He is the, the centerpiece, the, the very, uh, the very uh, center of what all of Scripture is about is Jesus. He has died for you so that you may have salvation. He has risen from the dead so that you may be raised. So that death is conquered. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. He is the only one in all of the world that really deserves our worship. Amen. Will you surrender to him? If you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, not really a Christian, I urge you to use this time as an opportunity to respond to the Lord, uh, to respond to, his, uh, to, to him at this moment. Uh, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. To see this triumphal entry, Lord, that you are the king, that you are the Messiah. That, Lord, you are the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And, Lord, that you, you come in bringing peace. But not political peace, not that kind of peace, not an earthly peace that we might be thinking that we want. Lord, you come and bring the ultimate peace, that is peace with you. You're dying for our sins. Lord, thank you for that sacrifice. As we move closer over the following weeks, we move closer to the cross. Lord, help us to move to, to remember the greatness of that sacrifice. Lord, I pray this all in your name. Amen. Please stand. Yeah.